Hi, this is Jim Brangenberg, the host of the I Work For Him radio show. Thanks for listening to the I Work For Him podcast, where we discuss our workplace as our mission field. The live version of our show can be heard each weekday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern on AM 570 and 910 WTBN, locally in the Tampa Bay area, and worldwide on the web at letstalkfaith.com or iHeartRadio. Our website, iWorkForHim.com, has great resources on how you can learn about how your workplace can be your mission field. And also check out the sponsors that bring you the radio show each and every day. And while you're there on I Work For Him, click on the I Work For Him Nation flag and prayerfully consider joining the I Work For Him Nation. Join thousands around the globe praying for their coworkers and employees by name each and every day. That's IWorkForHim.com. I Work, the number four, Him.com. Remember, your workplace is your mission field, and in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Thanks again for listening. I hope this broadcast will make an impact on your life so that you'll never look at your workplace the same again. Let's get to today's show. You've tuned into the fastest one hour in Christian talk radio. Hey, how do you spend your time? Do you spend your time thinking big or thinking small or maybe not thinking at all? You know, there are people in our society, in our culture that think so big, it'll blow your mind. And today, our guest is one of those people. Really, as he's introduced in public and in his movie, and some today, his real, the movie that's going to go Hollywood big time, the real life Forrest Gump. We're talking today with Terry Hitchcock. He ran 75 marathons in 75 straight days, all to promote, and not to promote, but to draw attention to the plight of single parent families. Mark Phillips, you brought Terry Hitchcock into my life. Mark Phillips, you've brought several people into my, John Stenberger onto the show. There's been other people. You've connected me to David Jolly. We've had some great interviews. Mark Phillips, I just want to thank you for being such a friend of I work for him. And what's going on in your world today? Well, thank you, Jim. Yeah, it's always good to recirculate back into your space. It brings back fond memories of uh, when I remember you birthing the show here. And uh, it had just some common memory strokes for me with some other individuals up in the in our good old Midwest days. Yes, that's right. That were embarking on this same area of communication and uh, outreach. Uh, recently, we sponsored my organization sponsored the first drug summit in Florida. That may sound like an oxymoron uh, to some degrees, but it's the first first faith based drug summit to draw attention to the demise of our culture. Uh, certainly the aggressive assault on our children and families by the narco industry that's happening, naturally ever so present with the recent legislative uh, dilemma with the Amendment to legalization of medical marijuana here in the state. I'm in alliance with the uh, Drug Free America Foundation here in St. Petersburg doing this, and that's been a real blessing. It allowed me also to uh, bring some more exposure to Terry Hitchcock, and this powerful story behind both his book, A Father's Odyssey, and the upcoming movie called Pushing Life. And we're just very appreciative of Terry playing a role that way to to reach people. Terry Hitchcock, thanks for joining us, and I work for him today. Thank you, Jim. It's my pleasure, believe me. What, 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 you know, people always laugh because somehow God does this. Earlier this week, I had somebody that grew up just nine miles south of Minnesota in Iowa. So I had to kept apologizing. I'm sorry I had to grow up in Iowa. But you and I hail from Minneapolis and St. Paul. We I mean, do. Our hearts are in the mid. I live in the Midwest every day as I drive across the bay. As I think about it, and, I, and all my friends, they're complaining about the cold and the snow. I'm thinking, 
I'm so jealous. Mm-hmm. Now, you are just a recent transplant to Clearwater, but your story hails from St. Paul, Minneapolis and St. Paul. It does. It does. I miss I miss Minnesota. Uh, but I love Florida. I mean, I'm kind of, you know, where would I want to live? Well, I don't want the snow anymore, the ice anymore. But uh, I love it here. I've been here for a year. And I'm looking to make a lot of friends and a lot of contacts. And, uh, you know, my life is really how do I give back? How do I make a difference? And uh, I've, I've had that theme in my life for many, many years. Terry, I, I, people need to hear your story. But your passion in all of this is to highlight the plight of single parents because it is the toughest job in America, being a single parent. Oh, it is. Uh, I never counted on doing something like that. Uh, as a typical guy, perhaps, I couldn't boil water. I didn't know how to raise my kids because my job, basically, in my marriage was to earn a living and to take care of my family and so forth. Um, so it was a surprise to me. My wife died in her early 30s. Uh, two days after the funeral, I lost my job at a number two guy at a large company. And so, you know, I got hit between the, between the eyes twice, if you will, in one week. So I had to figure out what am I going to do with my life and how do I raise three young kids, uh, four, six, and nine. And, uh, you know, nobody to tell me. I had no family. It was just me. Yet you were raised by a single mother. Uh, Yes, and then by my grandparents also. Talk about that a little bit. Well, that's a really tough part. Um, When I talk to kids, I tell that story because I need to know that, you know, I've been where they've been. And uh, I... uh, I was raised by my mother as best she could, and then at one point in time she said, uh, I want to uh, really give you to my mom and dad to raise from seventh grade on. Um, I was in a street gang. I was in a couple of broken homes. I lived in the back seat of a car. Um, I mean, it goes on and on. I was even kidnapped. And so my childhood was all over the board. And I always felt that I was being pushed in the right direction. Every time my friends would go in one direction, I'd go in another direction. And uh, I didn't have a strong faith. I wasn't sure who was tugging at me to go in a different direction. But obviously later on I found out that uh, Jesus was with me all the time. And... uh, so my grandfather every day would say, you know, there's nothing in life that you can't accomplish. Nothing will be impossible for you. And if you ever dream, don't let anybody take your dream away from you. And when I'd say something to my grandmother about, I can't, she would look at me and say, can't, never did anything. So that's really a very strong part of my foundation. But your grandfather's one who introduced you to Christ. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so that living with them really, I mean, they introduced you to Christ. That was part of the transformational process in your life. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And as I grew up and as I became a young man, I always remember what my grandfather would say every day. You know, there'll be nothing I can't do in life. Nothing will be impossible. And so that has been sort of a uh, journey which had that focus. And my faith was very strong through that journey. I've always believed that... uh, I uh, I was carried many, many times as I look back at it. And so when I did this run, it, I just knew my grandfather said there's nothing I can't do. Well, let's not, let's, not, let's not give it all away. We don't want to give it all away just yet because I really want to go back to you. 
the Lord took an experience of you growing up in in a single parent household that wasn't so perfect, yes. and he never wastes an experience. I mean, well, that's what I've seen about the adversity in our lives. He, he he takes the adversity in our lives to shape us from who we are to who he can use more effectively. And the Lord didn't waste any of those experiences. He took your pretty tough experience under your mom, your pretty awesome experience under your grandparents, but then your grandpa died when you were, when you were I was trying to remember, is it late high school? or yes. Yeah, late yeah. high school. Sophomore. So that was tough because he'd become a significant influencer in your life. Mm-hmm. And then you meet your bride you get married, you get a great job, things are going good, and she gets sick. Yes, yeah. I remember she called me one day and said, could I come home? So I came home, and we sat down in the living room together, and she looked at me, and she said, I just came back from the doctors. I had breast cancer. And she was very young, 30s. And um, I remember for 14 months, I would take her to mail every about three times a week, drive down 80 miles one way, spend time listening to the doctors and going through tests and then drive her all the way back. And it was really tough, I remember. And uh, many, many nights when she'd be asleep, I would uh, get on my hands and knees and, and just, please, please, God, don't, don't take her from me. And uh, it was really hard. And uh, I, re- I remember her last couple of days. In fact, I remember the last day especially. She... Uh, uh, we were get, I was getting the kids off to school, and she said, uh, I, uh, I want the youngest one to go right now. And I said, but the bus doesn't come for 45 minutes. And she said, no, he has to go right now. Terry, you said that you remember the last day before your wife died. And you were starting to talk about she asked the youngest to leave. Yeah, she, she asked uh, for me to uh, send uh, my youngest, he was five years old at that time, to send him out to meet the bus. And I said, well, the bus is not coming for 45 more minutes. And she was very insistent. She said, no, he must leave now. So uh, uh, there was a friend of mine, uh, and I said, would you take my son over and, and be with him until the bus comes? And so he did. And I came back, and my wife looked at me, and she said, I love you. And uh, she winked, and then she passed away, just like that. And um, I'll I'll never forget that. She knew that she was going to be in a better place, and uh, she wanted to say goodbye. But uh, that was uh, one of those moments in life where mm. you just you just uh, just shake your head. Yeah, uh, she was such a beautiful woman, and uh, I've been very blessed, <laughs> very blessed. And that was the day he became a single parent. That was the day. Of three kids. You said the kids were five, eight, nine, six, eight, nine. What? Well, he had just turned, but he was, uh, I say four, six, and nine, but he had just turned five. Okay. And uh, there was no family. It was just me. Right. And my, I had, uh, um, I was about to lose my job two days later. So uh, I, uh, I had to learn so many things, so many things. And I don't think we appreciate what single parents go through. I mean, I had a, a big house, and I had three kids, and uh, I didn't know how to cook. Not really. And I make the joke I didn't know how to boil water. And so I had to learn all that. Plus, each each of my kids were going to different schools. You know, I well, which get... part of the Twin Cities were you living in at the time? Uh, this was uh, Eden Prairie. Okay. Yeah. Wow, back then, Eden Prairie was pretty remote. Yes, it was. And so I had, you know, they had music lessons. They had, you know, we had church. We had, we had everything. And so I had to, I had to balance that with a job, pay the bills, 
um, all sorts of things. So it was very long days for me. And my son, my oldest son, Christian, uh, said to me one day, you know, I used to get up, Dad, in the middle of the night, and I used to come downstairs for a glass of water. And he said, you'd be sitting uh, in what we called a library. It was just a small room with some books. He said, you'd just be sitting there looking out the window. And it was 3 in the morning. He said, he said I've done that many times, and I, I never told you, but he said, I've always been worried about you. And I said, yeah, I was just looking out the window wondering, all right, God, what do you have for me? What, what am I supposed to learn? Um, and so I, it was really tough. And I don't think we appreciate what single parents go through. I mean, I was running, when I did my run, it was 37 million single parents and their children. And we don't appreciate that. And that was 1996, 37 yeah. million single parents yeah. and their children. What's that number today? Oh, I don't know. It's in the 40s. It's 44, 45 million. Um, and it depends on how you count it. So it could be even a larger number. So how old were you when your wife died? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think 43, 44, something like that. So at one point in time, did you start realizing, hey, people need to know how tough it is to be a single parent? Oh, probably the first week. Oh, I immediately, because... You know, I, I remember my little one. The, my, the, my youngest came up and said, Dad, I need a pair of, of pants. And I looked right at him and I said, What's, <laughs> what size do you wear? And then he had this blank look at, on his face and I realized that he doesn't know. I don't know. When, I didn't buy the clothes normally. Um, so there was so much I realized immediately I had to learn. And then there was three meals, uh, meals a day. And, uh, you know, how do you do that? Um, but you do it. I mean, you pick yourself up and you, you learn how to do it. I mean, I, I talk to my Lord every night. You know, how do I do this? What do I do? What do you want from me? <laughs> what am I supposed to learn from this? Um, and it was tough. And I'm not a, I, I mean, I'm sort of a tough guy. I, I bounce back. And I was wondering, there were a few days where I wasn't sure if I was going to bounce back. I remember one day in very snowy, cold Minnesota, I walked for about a half a mile, just, I was kind of lost, you know, and I went into depression, and uh, all those things when you have a loss, you know, and I had to still stand up and do all the things that I had to do for three little ones. They needed you. Oh, they needed me, and friends don't know what to say to you. You know, uh, I remember one, one person said to me, oh, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, you need to start moving now, you need to start moving forward. Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out what to do. And he's telling me it's okay. No, it isn't okay. You know, grieving can last a number of years. Um, but I had to be tough. And uh, I had to stand up every morning and take care of three kids and take care of myself. And how hard was it for your kids to communicate to you how they were feeling? Because they knew that you were dealing with a really tough time. Mm-hmm. Yet they're dealing with it, too. They lost mom. And now dad lost his job, so there's lots of transition. I mean, I mean, how were any of them able to really communicate how they were feeling? Probably my oldest one, which is my daughter, Terry Sue. Uh, she, what she started to do, she started becoming mom. You know, I'll do this for you, dad. I'll do that for you. And after a while, I finally realized, whoa. Uh, you know, so I sat down with her and I said, Terry Sue, you need to be your age. You need to enjoy life. I'll be the father. I'll be the mother. 
And I went out and got a license plate that says Dr. Mom. And I had to do both both roles. And, and so I had to learn. And I learned one very special thing with my kids. I would talk with them sitting on the floor because now I'm at their level. And they're looking right at me. And we're talking together. And we... That really built a very strong bond between my kids, and it's still very strong today. What point in time? I mean, you go through the grieving process. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many months or years was it till you started to feel like it was okay to move forward? In my case, probably about a year and a half, two years. Um, it took me a long time to adjust to it. It was lonely. It was sad. It was all those feelings. Some angry, anger. But I'd say a year and a half, two years, I began to realize that God has a path for me to to take. There was a reason for this. And uh, I accepted that finally. And I I decided, okay, there is something for me to do. There is something to give, to to make a difference. Um, I remember one night a friend doctor said, have a pad of paper by your bed. So about 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up, and I wrote something down. Children are forever. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that it had some importance for me later on in my life. So probably a few weeks go by, and I wake up again. And I grab that same notepad and a pencil, and I wrote down, we come, to the, we come into this world as a child, and we leave in a childlike manner. And I said... I'm not sure what this means, but I think it means that I'm supposed to help kids. I'm supposed to make a difference. And so that's kind of been my path from that point on. But when some people think, okay, I'm supposed to help some kids. I'm supposed to make a difference. Most people don't go then, so how can I do that? I got an idea. I'm going to run from St. Paul to Atlanta. That's just, that's just, I mean... How did how did that transition happen? I mean, you're you're a single parent at this point in time. I know it's several years down the road when you actually do the run, but yet that was a. I mean, where did that idea come from? Well, I needed to get the media's attention. I'm not a runner. Uh, I ran you know a mile on Saturday morning. That was it. I was overweight, but I thought if I could get the media's attention. They'd allow me to get on a soapbox, and I'd talk about 37 million people. And so I thought, what can I do to accomplish that? And I said, well, I'm not a runner. I'm old as dirt, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, okay, I think I can package this. So I uh, grew my hair long, down to my shoulders, a long beard, so that I would be recognized on the highway. And I thought, okay. I'm That's what to- that was for. I was wondering, why didn't you just shave your head? Because it was so hot by the time <laughs> no, you got... Oh, it was very hot. No, I decided that I had to package myself. I'm a, I'm a marketeer. I had to package myself. So I thought, and where am I going to run? Well, two of my children were born in Atlanta. I worked for the Coca-Cola company when I was down there. So I thought, okay, I'm going to run to Atlanta, but I'm going to run to the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. I don't know how many days it would take me, and I'm sure I'll probably never make it. But maybe a couple of days out, the media will follow me. Maybe I can say something. And that was my dream. And so then I thought about it and I said, well, wait a minute. No one's going to follow me. But maybe if I say I'm going to run the equivalent of a marathon a day or more, then maybe I can get somebody to say, hey, let's see what this guy's doing. So that's how it all started. I trained for 17 months. 
had a heart attack halfway through my training. Wait, wait, wait. wait. So, I, thought, I thought healthy people don't have heart attacks, though. <laughs> I thought it was healthy. When I, when I read that in your book, because I read, I loved your book. It was fantastic. We're going to give away a copy after the bottom of the half hour. But when I, when I heard, they're like, Lord, really? Did you have to give him a heart attack? He's trying to do something good here. Well, but what did that, how did that heart attack change what you were doing? Well, I, uh, I was training, and I had, had a heart attack. And I didn't want to tell my trainer, because then he would say, well, I'm not going to train you anymore. So I said I was on vacation for three weeks. So he never knew until years later. But but I'm very stubborn. Really? Yeah. And I, see, I'm very stubborn. I really believed that I could do this. I was supposed to do it. And I would accomplish it. And so uh, uh, so I never told him. Uh, came back finally. My doctor said it. My cardiologist said, I'm going to die. I'll never make it. Runners said it was humanly impossible. But my grandfather said I could do it. My grandfather said if I had a dream, no one's going to take it away from you. So that was my push to keep going with it. And uh, never thought I'd go two or three days. I mean, I, I, how am I going to make it? It was impossible. Well, the truth is that nobody would ever run more than three marathons in a row, ever, yes, before that point in time. Yeah. I didn't know that at the time, but I found out later that was the world's record. And I, I, didn't, I wasn't in it. To, I just wanted to get on a soapbox and say something. Mark Phillips, you brought Terry Hitchcock in here. You connected me to Terry. You got me a copy of this book. You said, Jim, this is somebody you probably want to interview. There's a movie coming out. Talk about the movie that's coming out. That Well, it, it's going to get produced first before it comes out. But talk, talk about what's going on here. A very powerful moment in my life was about four years ago when an, uh, an old dear Minnesota friend exposed this story to me. Uh, he sent a packet down to me uh, introducing the book. It struck me deeply as a single parent father myself after a marriage breakup back in the early 90s. Uh, it went very deep with me, but there was another powerful image that struck my, my head at that point, Jim, and it was the icon of two hanging tennis shoes, runner's shoes, on the front of the documentary CD that just embedded deeply in me. And some of it was tied perhaps uh, in the relationship of the Forrest Gump story that's only present in our Hollywood minds and experience. But as I got deeper into Terry's uh, context of where he was coming from and the passion to do this run for the benefit of visibility and emphasis on single parents' needs and children's needs, uh, it went very deep for me. Fast forward about four years uh, later, and I find that he's living here in Clearwater on my front doorstep. And... Uh, Fast forward a bit in our relationship, I'm kind of his point man here locally, at least in the Florida stomping grounds. I, I love to connect him with churches and civic groups or interviews, situations like this. But some of that even as current as about 10 days ago where we had him in front of a, a bunch of people at a country club for a Sunday afternoon reception. And out of a small crowd of about 15 people, three of those stepped forward and said, hey, Terry, we want to help build this movie. We want to help make this happen for you. So the Pushing Life movie is kind of a, a celeb cause of my personal heart right now. Well, and I appreciate that work. And there are so many single parents out there, Terry, that are struggling with how do I m just the next hour? It's not, not just like how, what, what's tomorrow look like. It's like how do I get through dinner tonight? How do I get through bedtime tonight? How do I get m my work done at home and still raise these kids? I mean, the plight of a single parent it's tough, and and this is a work min, workplace ministry focused show, and I wanted to have you on so we could talk about what do we do 
to help our single parent. What did you need? As a single parent, what did you need from your friends that you didn't necessarily get? I needed a hug. I needed to know that they cared for me uh, because it's really a lonely time. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have some of my friends came up and gave me a hug, and they were there when I didn't know how to do something and whatever. And some left me because they didn't know what to say to me. Uh, but it, to me, it was a very lonely time. Uh, I had my kids, and thank goodness I had some friends. But I didn't have family. I couldn't ask them to take care of my kids when I went on a trip or looked for a job or whatever. So to me, it was a very lonely time. And um, I had to sometimes give myself a hug. Uh, my doctor, who is a very dear friend of mine, said, and he gave me a big white teddy bear. And he said, <laughs> he said, walk around the house hugging your bear. And it worked. It worked. And uh, each day got better. You know, it's not impossible. Nothing really is impossible. But, you know, you just have to take a step back once in a while and look yourself in the mirror and say, you know, I can do this. I can do this. So, um, you know, it's just one step at a time. Sometimes it's not one hour at a time. Sometimes it's one one minute at a time, yeah, I imagine. it really is. All right. So let's talk about the run. So you, you trained for 17 months. And in the middle of that, you um, you had a heart attack. You continued training. I didn't know you had kept it a secret from your trainer. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> All right. But you start the run. And, but you had to, in order to get to Atlanta in July, you had to leave Minnesota when it was cold. Yes. And most people don't understand because they live in Florida and they think cold is 40. <laughs> but the problem is in April and in May, it still snows in Minnesota. Yes. In the 30 years I lived in Minnesota, it snowed on my mom's birthday, on Memorial Day. It snowed on Memorial Day twice. <laughs> people are like, really? I mean, flurries, but it was still cold enough to snow. How hard was it to get started? Was the first day the easiest day? There was no easy day. Um, no. In fact, the first day was kind of comical. No one ever told me that running downhill would be more difficult. Uh, and I came on my 31 days, uh, 31, 31 miles the first day, that I came to this big hill. And I thought, well, it's easier running downhill. No, it isn't. You're, it's a different angle of with your body and so forth. So I found out very quickly as I started down the hill that, oh, this hurts. This is really, really tough. And so I grabbed on the side of the, the fence that was going on the side of the hill, and I went like, like I'm skiing side, sideways down a little bit. And then I sat down on my butt, and I pushed my sound down a little bit. Finally got down to the bottom of the hill. And so I learned a very, very important lesson. When you come to a hill, it's going to be tough. And there are many hills along the way. And most people don't understand it, but when you're going down a hill, you have to hold yourself back. All the pressure goes right on your kneecap. Yep. I mean, I was a cross-country runner in Minnesota, and we run through the river bottoms right along the St. <laughs> Croix. So right where you were at, I told you, you know, I know where you're at. But And what I loved is that in your story, you got to that one hill. You, you ran up the mountain in Chattanooga, yeah. but you didn't run down. No. That was the only place you jumped on a bike. That's right. Yeah. And how fast were you going on the bike? Because I've climbed that mountain. I mean, there's just one yeah. mountain between here and Minnesota. And you have yeah. to drive. There's no way to get around it. Yeah. That was probably a very fast bike ride. Uh, extremely fast. I don't know. I My son said 35 or whatever. Um, it, was, it was very scary. But I just let it go. I just let it coast all the way down. And it was really flying. 
And uh, I normally, I didn't want to take the bike because I wanted, but a friend of mine said, no, this is, uh, this is pedal power or something like that. He said he convinced me that it was okay because I want to do this all the way on a run. But he said it was okay. And it was it was a, it's okay to me. But to it just said that. two or three miles. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. It's out of out of how many total miles did you run? Uh, I I believe it's almost twenty two hundred. Because you know, between Atlanta and St. Paul, it is literally only about twelve hundred miles. But mm-hmm. you can't go the direct route because they don't like runners on 75, <laughs> 24, 57, exactly. 39, yeah. 94, yeah. running into St. Paul. That's yeah, we, just not what they like. Yeah, we did the back roads. Yeah. And, uh, and they're not exactly the direct route. No, and they're not always friendly roads either. Um, had a truck uh, come right off the road after me, and uh, how he missed me, I don't know. But I dove down the embankment and got all cut up and bruised and and uh, so I met a couple people like that. Now, we said right before the break that, listen, nobody had ever run. Before you did this, nobody had ever run more than three marathons in a row in three days. Correct. And you ran 75 marathons in 75 days. And Correct. some days it was more than a marathon. Marathons, 26.2. I looked at your charts. Some days you had 30-some miles mm-hmm. in a day. But the whole idea was to draw attention to the plight of single parents. You know, you said in the book, I read, hey, why don't we have a cabinet position for kids? And that was during the Clinton presidency. That, and you said it in a radio interview, I believe. Mm-hmm. Or was it a TV interview? It was a television interview. Because you had, you had TV and radio following you all across the nation. Yeah, and I, when people were tracking your route, they were waiting along the route to greet you. That's right. And I want to talk about one of those stops one time. But first I want to talk, did you ever get a chance to talk to a president yet about a cabinet position for kids? I've been trying for 20 years. I get very close, but I want to make sure that I, I talk to the president because it's so important to me. Uh, throughout the whole run, I got parents coming to me. I got kids coming to me, tell me about the issues in their life and no one cares. And I mean, I can go do a whole hour of just what people say to me. And we don't realize what's out there and the hardship and the caring. And I, 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 this is so important to me to get that door open so I can sit down with the president and say, Here's what I saw. Here's what we need. And this is what we need to do. Mark, you are connected to so many people in and out of Washington. Why can't you get them an audience with the president? Ooh, haven't gone there yet, but... Uh, well, I, what are you waiting for? I, I do have a couple Terry of, was done running 21 years ago. I do have a friend that was flying around with Donald Trump this past year, so that may happen yet. Jim, I'll make sure you get Can the you, first QT. Well, I don't. Need, I don't even need. No, no, I don't need that. I just really want Terry to get that audience before it. You know, I and I think Donald Trump would be one of those guys that would listen to it. I do too. And, and it's and what a great opportunity, Terry. We're going to pray for that because I'll. I don't have any connections on the inner circle, but I got just outside the circle. We're going to get that interview for you. Thank you so much. Because we, well, we're just. This going to take a God sized miracle, but Mark, you're probably better connected than I am. But let's work that for him. What if if you're sitting in front of the president? What is it that you want to say to him? Uh, very simply, I'd say, when I did the run across America, I saw the heartbeat of this country. I had people come up to me and tell me their their the issues that they're facing that no one really seemed to care about. I, I've challenged every pol- pol- politician that I've sat down with and said, "Have you seen this? Have you experienced this?" And so far, I've got no yeses. Uh, when I was in East St. Louis. I mean, I wasn't supposed to be there. I wasn't supposed to get through East St. Louis, but yet we had uh, a wonderful 
gathering as we talked about life, not about the run, but about life. And so I saw life, and I want to share that, and I want to talk about our, our, the asset that we have that we don't identify. Well, and it's a shame that the current standing president, President Obama, didn't allow you that audience because there's a guy that grew up in a single mom absolutely yeah. and so he understands better than than anybody who's ever been president before i don't know if we've ever had another president before that was a single that grew up in a single parent household i suppose it's possible i just don't know it, it's a message that people need to hear but i want the church to hear it terry i want the people listening today the church the body of christ who are going to work every day they're going to church every day they're going home to neighborhoods every day living alongside living life with people who are single parents and it's a tough plight. And I want you to speak into those people today, Terry, on things that they can do. You know, you became a single parent because your wife died. A lot of people become single parents because their husbands take off or their wives take off. There's you know a brutal divorce somewhere in there. And, and the only thing worse than being a single parent is being a single parent and having an ex-spouse driving you crazy while you're trying to do a good job for your for your family. What are some things, practical things that we can do you talked about the mourning process. You just needed a hug. You needed encouragement. Now you're further in into the years. As you're preparing to go on the run, what are some things that people practically did that were encouraging to you, that were helpful to you? Well, a lot of people came to me and said, you know, we believe in you. We believe in you, and we're going to help you in any way you can. You tell us what you need. Well, I didn't know what I needed at the time, but I knew that each day— um, I needed to know that what I was doing was important. And so people would drive wherever I was, meet me on the highway, and say, you're doing something important. You're, you're doing something special for people. And uh, they started building that up. So every day, I would, the media became my best friend. Uh, people would fly in if I was going to be in Nashville or wherever I was going to be. They'd get ahead of me and they'd meet me on the on the highway and just make sure I knew that what I was doing had some value. And every day you had people somewhere along your route that were there to encourage you. I did. Terry Hitchcock, a single parent, wanted to bring attention to the plight of single parents across our nation. He ran 75 marathons. In 75 days, from St. Paul, Minnesota to Atlanta, Georgia, in 75 days. Never been done before. Terry, has it ever been done since? There are a few people who have come close, but no. I think the, the uh, one right now is 51, uh, 51 marathons. In 51 days. In 51 days. So not even close. No. no. Well, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> it never is going to happen. It's amazing. Day 45. I told people we we're going to talk about day 45 because that was the spot in the story where I shed a tear and, and, and it, because it touched my heart. But before we get to day 45, I want to let you know, you can get a copy of Terry's book at terryhitchcock.com, terryhitchcock.com. You can also schedule Terry for local speaking events off the website, terryhitchcock.com, or talk to Mark Phillips, his handler, 813-532-5023, 813-532-5023. Five three two five zero two three. Just talk to Mark, and he will get you in touch with Terry and get an inter- get a uh, speech set up. Because this is something that needs to get out. And if any of you have connections in the inner circle in the president elect uh, Donald Trump's cabinet, please let me know. Jim and I work for him. dot com. Let's get Terry a conversation with President Trump, President elect Trump, to talk about getting a Department of Children. We'd like to have that. Terry, day forty five. You're running along a rural road, which you did that a lot, and you ran across a family waiting for you 
that had a child in a wheelchair who said he was hoping one day to run and that he hoped that he'd run into you alongside the road one day and that you gave him, then you gave him a pair of shoes. Did you ever hear from that kid? You know, I don't believe I did, but I certainly remember the day. Uh, Call him Sam. And uh, I was so touched because when he, to get to the road, he had to come down a gravel road by his house. And I thought, wow. And his uh, mom and dad were there, and um, I was so taken back by it. And I wanted to do something, because he said he, someday he's going to run. He's going to be just like me. He's going to make a difference. He was going to run. And I remember stopping, and uh, I literally sat down on the road beside him, and we talked. And uh, I took off my shoes, and I said, here, I'll sign them. So I signed my shoes. Of course, by that time, all of my shoes were, I had about 11 pair, and they were all beat up pretty badly. But... Uh, it, it was something that he w- he just wanted. He wanted something that I had, and that made the, a big difference. You can see the big smile on his face and so forth. And I thought to myself, you know, someday he's going to run. He's going to do this. And I told him that, and he smiled, and he said, you know, I think I will. I'm going to be just like you. And it was a very special day for me, too. But you had stories like that all oh. along the whole way, oh, and, yeah. and there are just so many of them. I, I I want to talk about, because you talk about the plight of single parents, and it's rough. But your plight in trying to draw attention to the plight of single parents, at the end of the run, you had bro- you had uh, fractured shins, right? I mean, you had, you had broken legs. Both of my ankles are fractured halfway to Atlanta, and my patella or my right uh, kneecap was fractured. And I remember we were at a hospital, and my son and my team quit on day 30. And so it's just my son and I trying to get through each day, which uh, I don't know how we did it sometimes. I don't know how that car, but you know why that car lasted so long? That 3.8 liter V6 was a phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal. It was a LeSabre that you were driving, wasn't it? No, it was an 88. Oh, old 88. Same yes, car, yes, same car. Yeah. 3.8 liter supercar. Those 3800s are phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. But you, I mean, how did you deal? That's incredible. You had broken bones, and yet yeah. you were, that was midway through. Yeah, but but you see, when you when you do something like this, there's pain every day. I mean, you you can't hide it. It's it, every step is painful, and your body just adjusts to it. So when you find out in the hospital that both your ankles are fractured and your kneecap is fractured, it's still pain. You just have to take a. a and now you know why you got pain. Yeah. Oh, but let me tell you. Um, How's your walking today? I mean, this oh, is 20 fine. years ago. Yeah, I'm fine. I, I've, I've always, you know, I, I look at life maybe different than other people. I'm very happy about life. There's nothing I can't do in life. Uh, I have no broken bones right now. I've lost the weight that I had when I was running. I remember when I first saw a clip of the film when they put it together, I'm coming over the over a hill. And I remember looking at myself running and I said, what tank is that coming over the hill? Final word for single parents listening today. Give them one word of encouragement. I just want to say there's nothing you can't do with your life. Nothing is impossible. And if you have a dream, don't let anybody take it away from you. Uh, just believe in yourself and move forward with your life and enjoy it, knowing that God has you every step of the way. Terry Hitchcock, Mark Phillips, thanks so much for being on I Work for Him you, today. You know, and just hear that, ladies and gentlemen, if you're not a single parent, look look for ways to support the single parents that God has put in your, it, just around you. These people need our encouragement. They need our support. They need our help. They need babysitting some days. Ladies and gentlemen, they just need to have a break. You can help. 
Well, you can do it. Find out more about Terry Hitchcock, terryhitchcock.com, terryhitchcock.com, or schedule him for a speech at 813-532-5023. You've been listening to I Work For Him with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower. My workplace, it's my mission field. But ultimately, I work for him.